Okay, so this morning, uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter 6 and 7, and the words will be up on the screen. It'll be up on your screen. If you've got them with you, you can follow along that way. I'm going to read both chapters because why not? Uh, I'm also going to do something. As I was sitting there, I'm like, I think I'm going to do something. I'm going to improv a little bit later, um, and that will be fun. Um, so, yeah, we're going to take a chance, see what happens. Um, but before we read, let's pray together. God, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, for this book, which is weird. It's a weird book. Um, and in it, you speak to us, and you give us images that, that, that fire up our imaginations, and uh, they make us, it, these words make us feel things. And then your, your spirit is in the mix, and, and you get to work, and you change us and mold us. And so we humbly ask that that happens again, that you would change us and mold us and make us new. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. So, chapter 6, I watched. So, again, imagine it, see it, feel it, uh, live into it. Um, it's the best way to experience This book has to be experienced. Uh, rather than just, it's not a code that we have to decode. It's not giving us hidden secret messages uh, about the end of the world. Uh, it's just describing the way things are. It's pulling back the veil between heaven and earth, and we're, seeing, and we're now seeing things that are really hard to see. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given the power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living, third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Then when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. 
There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Do you know when you do something in life and you're like embarrassed by it, you know you messed up big time and you look in the mirror the next day and you're like, and you like want to hide because you're like, you can't believe who you've become and you're like, I can't, I can't do this. And so, so you want to hide kind of what's happening here. Fall on us. Hide us. What we've become is being exposed, and we don't like it. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, 12,000. Did you keep up with that, Justine? After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You feel how all-expansive and inclusive that is? All of them standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are, the, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Whew. Lots happening there. 
Huh? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Dun, dun, dun. So lots going on here. Here's how we're going to start. Um, think about why you might, might go to the doctor and what happens when you get there. Let's say you've got a, you've got a pain in your knee, right? Like you're, you're, you're running around and you notice that every once in a while it hurts really bad. Like there's a sharp pain in there and you, you feel like your knee is going to give out every time you sort of cut a certain way. Um, and it feels like there's something clicking in there. And, uh, and so, you know, the people who love you notice that you're hobbling around and they're like, you should probably go get that checked out, right? And so you go to the doctor and what happens when you get there? Like the doctor, a good doctor will ask you, ask you some questions. What's up? Tell me about the pain in your knee. And then after describing the pain in your knee, the doctor could say something like this. Well, uh, here's some Motrin. Take that. It'll dull the pain and make the swelling go down. And you might want to just take it easy for a little while. And you're like, but doctor, did you not hear what I said? Like there's a clicking noise in there. It feels like my whole knee is going to fail. It's just going to give out. Like you want the doctor to do more than that, right? So a good doctor would say, okay, can you trace this pain back to an experience that you may have had? Like, did you injure yourself? What happened? And then you're like, yeah, I was standing up on a ladder fixing a light bulb in my garage and I fell off the ladder and I banged my knee on the ground and twisted it up really, really bad. Then the doctor would do some more things, like the doctor would do some tests, probably manipulate the, the thing for a little bit, probably maybe even send you to a specialist, and they would come back and they would do these magical scans that can see inside your leg, and they can find out what's really wrong in there, and they'll say, you've torn a ligament, you're going to need surgery, right? Because doctors, good doctors, they want to get to the bottom of things, the only way, what's really wrong with you must be fully exposed before you can be healed. The evil in your knee must be fully exposed before your knee can be put back together again. I think that's a little bit like what we have going on here in chapter 6. Of Revelation. By the way, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not just coming up with this willy-nilly. I'm not just sitting down reading Revelation and just be like, I think this is what it means. No. Like, my two primary sources are a guy named Eugene Peterson, and the other one is named N.T. Wright. They've both written really good commentaries on the book of Revelation. So, we've just come from chapters four and five. You remember that? The great throne room of God. It's like this ginormous picture of God with God on the throne and all of creation caught up in worship. At the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, there is a scroll. And we talked about how the scroll is like, the, like a great architect has plans and the only one who can open up the plan is the, is the lead architect in order to make this building happen. Well, there's a scroll. It's God's plan to rescue the world, to heal the world, to put things back together again, to make all things new. And then there's this vision of the lion land. This victory is going to be lion-like. It's going to be complete, but it isn't going to happen through the ways of the lion, through violence and brute force and coercion and manipulation. It's going to happen by the self-sacrificing, self-giving love 
of the lamb. So we turn the page over from chapter 5, and we expect the lamb to start breaking the seals and the healing of the world to begin. And we're all excited about this love that's about to wash over all of creation, making all things new. And there's lots of flowers and rainbows and stuff, and it smells really good, and it's so awesome. But instead, what do we see? We see violence. We see destruction. We see death. We see the rider on the white horse signifying nations, conquering nations, and subduing one another, claiming sovereignty over one another. We see the rider on the red horse who takes away the superficial appearance of peace and showing exactly what's happening. Like for a long time, we felt like things were so good in this country, right? Like everything felt good. Everything was going on. But what we didn't realize was there's a whole bunch of stuff underneath the surface. And now all of a sudden it's bubbling up to the surface. And there are some really ugly things happening right now. The red horse is showing us some stuff. Then we got the black horse signifying the economic problems in the world, which often contributing, which often contribute to the to the warring of nations and the and the problems between people and countries. We see the pale horse, we get more violence, more famine. These horsemen are being unleashed on the world. What's going on here? What is happening? The evil in the world must be fully exposed and understood before God will completely heal the world. It's the only way the destructive powers of the world can be completely overthrown. God is getting to the bottom of the problem. What's really wrong? Evil must be exposed so that it can be dealt with so that creation can be healed. So John is writing all these things to this small, fragile community community, this persecuted church, living under real threats and real dangers from the Roman Empire. And they're hearing this picture of these four horsemen, and they're thinking to themselves, what you just described, John, fits absolutely perfectly with our reality. The world has gone crazy, like it's completely nuts out there. And now there's us, 2,000 years later, and we look around at the world and we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, the world has gone nuts. Improvised time. You get to help me. Okay? So, as we look around at the world right now, and we think to ourselves, oh my gosh, the world has gone nuts. I can't believe that's happening. What, What does that bring to mind? Do you have a cricket noise you could play? Do, do, should we do this? Like, can we lament together? Like, like really? Can we look? Can we... Children are getting shot in schools. Teachers don't feel safe. People can carry around AR-15s, automatic weapons, and just mow down people. You can't go to a 4th of July parade and feel safe. What? And we just sit back and be like, yeah, it's fine. Like, like we're numb to it now. The world's nuts. Like, 
We've lost it. It's crazy. What else? I started the ball. Anything else? War? Ukraine? Ukraine? Don't be afraid. We can do this. It sucks. It's hard. There's some really bad stuff in the world. What else? Poverty? What else? Like racism is still a thing, right? Like it's, it's really bad. We got whole groups of white supremacist people. We got people who want to try to, you know, overthrow the government and, and went there with guns, waving Jesus flags. What? What else? It's hard. Can we speak these things in church? What else? Say that again. Hate, hatred in general. Yeah. Hate speech that's normalized now. We're like, it's okay. Like the normal social contract that we have, like is somehow been broken. Like we can say whatever we want about whatever we want, no matter how hateful and dangerous it is. And it's like, fine. Okay. Hard. This is hard. Even the fact that it's hard for us to speak these things. Right? We look at the world, we're 2,000 years later, and we think, it's, it's nuts out there. The world has gone crazy. God must be really patient at exposing the evil in this world. Much, much more patient than we are. Like exposing the evil in the world so that we can see it. That's what the cross is, by the way. The cross is an exposure of utter evil. So we look, at, we look upon the evil of the cross. We look upon the evil of all the crazy stuff we think out there. And we have an opportunity to go, okay, no more. Okay, that, uh-uh, no more. God is, God is so patient. Giving humankind the time and opportunity to say, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. Right? Now it's easy for us, just like it was for those followers of Jesus, to look around at the crazy world and to sort of slip into a kind of fatalism, isn't it? It's easy for us to, to listen to the whispers of all the pessimism that's out there. Whispers that tell us the, the, the deck is stacked against us. Like, it doesn't matter how passionate we are. It doesn't matter how well-organized we are. It doesn't matter because evil is going to win and we're all going to be crushed. It's easy for us to, to slip into a sort of a sense of fatalism. Like, what, what are we going to do? It doesn't matter. It's, all, it's like a big wave and it's crashing over us and it's going to get us all. It may have seemed that way to this little church, like it sometimes seemed to us, like the world has gone crazy, like the world is spinning out of control. It feels that way. I was thinking about this idea and driving home for lunch, I believe it was on 
Wednesday or Thursday, don't remember. I heard a song that's old now. I remember when it wasn't old by a guy named Billy Joel. Song goes like this. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. And then there's like this long, long list of all the crazy out there. Listen to that song. You're like, it's still happening. Like the world is spinning out of control. Well, guess what? They felt that. That's why John is saying, look at what's happening at the world. It's nuts. And I know it feels like it's, I know it feels crazy out there. But guess what? It's not out of control. I mean, we're 2,000 years later. The world's still spinning. It's still spinning. And this vision shows us that it's definitely not completely out of control. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, a phrase we don't use often enough, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and the ways of the Lamb. A great multitude of people who recognize the Lamb and the ways of the Lamb. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That's what really transforms the world. A great multitude of people who recognize that reality. I'm here to tell you, there's more of us who recognize that than there are of them. There's a great multitude of people. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the world going crazy, we have a picture a vision of God on his throne above it all. And because God is on the throne, what can we expect? What can we expect? Well, go back and read the stories about Jesus in the Bible. What can we expect? Especially towards the end, when the world went crazy. And then they buried him in a tomb. What can we expect? Resurrection? Anyone? New life? Things being put back together? We can expect that one day, as John puts it, there will be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat. It's this great grand vision of God on the throne, watching over and caring for those who are faithful to the ways of the Lamb even in the middle of a world gone nuts. I want us to notice something else. They see the brightness in their crazy world only while they're all gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lamb. Is this whole book about worship? Yeah. The whole thing. This whole book is about worship. What you, give you, what you give your life to, you will become. You can give your life to empire. You can give your life to violence. You can give your life to manipulation. You can give your life to all of that, and that's what you will become. Or you can give your life 
to the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of the Lamb, and you will become a self-giving person who loves deeply. The whole thing's about worship. And when we gather here together in the middle of a crazy world, here in this place, in this space, in, in worship, we get answers to some of our biggest questions. Like, who is God? And who are we called to be? And even if we don't get the answers we're looking for, or we get maybe no answers at all, or the answers we get are a whole lot more gray than we want them to be, here's one thing we do get, God on the throne. What we do see is that God hasn't left us. What we do see is that God remains faithful. What we do see is that this world matters. What we do see is that our lives matter to God. That's what worshiping can do for us. It can bring us, it can bring us at least that assurance and can give us a little peek into the divine perspective. I think it's significant that there's a crowd there. I think it's significant that there's a great multitude there, people from every nation, tribe, people, language, this big, beautiful mix of raw humanity. Oh, it's so beautiful. I think it's significant that they're all worshiping together. I don't think we should ever forget about the power of worshiping together. It helps us to be surrounded by a great company of people, all reminding ourselves who God truly is and who we are really truly called to be. There was a study done years ago by a couple of sociologists, one from Harvard and one from UC San Diego. They stumbled on some old records from a heart study done in 1948 and then extending further beyond in a little town called Framingham, Massachusetts. And since the town was so small, almost everybody in the town participated. And because everybody in the town participated, they could sort of map relationships and trends in this town over a long period of time. So parents were in the first phase, children were in the second phase, and then grandchildren were in the last phase of the study. And because they, they tracked weight during this whole, this whole thing, they could track trends. Here's what they found out. In 1948, fewer than 10% of the people in this small town were considered to be overweight. In 1985, 18% were. And at the end of the study, 40% of the people were found to be overweight. What they found out was people found fast food all at the same time. What they found out that when friends and family change their eating habits, you will too. They also, they also watched smoking trends. Here's what they found out. No surprise, back in the 70s, 65% of Framingham people who were 40 and above smoked. By the end of the study, only 22% did. They found that family and friends had influence people decided to quit smoking together. Isn't that interesting? That good really does win out over evil and that love really is the only thing that transforms anything and there really is someone over it all setting the world right. Worshiping here together helps us know that nothing, nothing 
can separate us from the love of God. Not even anything out there in a world gone crazy. But you know what? And I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating time and time and time and time again, because I think we need to remind ourselves of this. When we walk out of this place, our worship doesn't end. Remember when we talked about how when we gather here together in this place, we start worship. It doesn't end at, at 11 o'clock. We're, we're, we're gathering into this place and we're, we're joining something that's already happening. Like the whole creation is already worshiping, pointing to something beyond itself, pointing to the Creator. So when we walk out these doors, our worship doesn't end. That thing we do at the end of church, it's called the benediction. May the grace of Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit go with us all now and every single moment of every single day, which is a little tagline I put on at the end because it makes it much more explicit that we're not ending here. Because the Spirit is with us every single moment of every single day. So that benediction, it's not an end. It's ascending. I'm sending us all out there. So that when we walk out these doors, we've now just been trained to pay attention to the presence of God out there. So when we walk out these doors, we cultivate a lifestyle of worship. We take our worship with us, paying attention to the Lamb and the ways of the Lamb. And wherever we see love out there, we see the Lamb. We experience the presence of God and we worship. But then sometimes we walk out that door and we get knocked around by a world gone nuts. The world smacks us around. We're constantly barraged and pummeled by a huge number of, of distractions and temptations and Twitter and Facebook and complexities and all sorts of all sorts of pressures that threaten to sort of separate us from these ideas and the reality that God really is love. We have so many deadlines and responsibilities and projects and meetings. It can be hard for us to pay attention to the presence of God in our lives. So the best thing to do is to just practice. Practice. The older you get, the more you practice, the better you get. So in the 1600s, there lived a guy, a Christian mystic by the name of Brother Lawrence. Served in the Thirty Years' War, was near fatally injured, left that, went to live in a monastery. And when he got to the monastery, he took all the jobs that nobody else wanted. So he was the cook, the sandal repair guy, but it was in those mundane activities that Brother Lawrence learned to pay attention to the presence of God in his life. It was in those everyday mundane activities that Brother Lawrence cultivated a sense that God is always with us. It was in those mundane activities that Brother Lawrence figured out that everything he did, he did as if he was doing it in service to God. If you want to learn more about Brother Lawrence, just Google him. There's a, there's a little collection of his writings and thoughts called Practicing the Presence of God. You can download it for free. The web is amazing sometimes. And you can read it. It's challenging and thoughtful. And sometimes you'll be like, what? That's weird. But Brother Lawrence, everything he did, he did as if he was serving God. There's an old phrase I've used before. Here it is again. It means before the face of God. 
It's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Such a powerful phrase, quorum Deo, C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Right? To live by that creed, Quorum Deo, is to be aware of God's presence and action in our lives. To live by that creed, Quorum Deo, is to live with the understanding that God's love is always for us and always with us. And in the tradition of Brother Lawrence, everything we do is in service to God. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Teachers, when you teach, you're forming little hearts and minds Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Farmers, when you farm, gardeners, when you garden, you plant, you harvest, you take care of the land and those plants, Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Students, when you student, you're learning and reading and absorbing Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Bosses, when you boss, when you're having those tough conversations with your employees, having to correct them, you're having those tough conversations before the face of God. Quorum Deo. Parents, when we parent, when we discipline our children or when we're correcting their behavior or when we're just trying to get them to learn how to ride a bicycle without training wheels, which can be infuriating sometimes, we're doing those things quorum Deo before the face of God. When we're in the hospital with a loved one, when we're learning about crazy things that happen at parades on the 4th of July, when we're watching the evening news and we're overwhelmed, when we're, when we're crushed under the weight of everyday life and responsibilities, all of that stuff happens, quorum Deo, before the face of God. And when we remember and remind ourselves and become aware that we're doing all of those things, quorum Deo, before the face of God, do you know what's happening? We're worshiping. And when we worship, when we give our lives over to God, it helps to sustain our faith, helps to enliven our hope, it helps to en enlarge our love. It's a transformative thing. It doesn't matter how crazy the world gets because salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and the ways of the Lamb. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Let's pray.